Well, we now have the privilege of hearing from the Word. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as he teaches us more and more about how to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And here to help us with our scripture reading is Jess. Our scripture today comes from Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to our uh, Sunday service. And I am speaking today on the last part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we are finishing with Jesus' final exhortation. This one is about foundations. Jesus concludes his sermon here with a profound and sober truth about foundations. He says this, what you put as the foundation for your life determines almost everything about you. So be wise in the foundation that you build upon. Last week we heard Jesus talk a lot about two ways. There were uh, two roads that, that you could take. There were two fruits that you could produce. There were two verdicts that you can pursue. And here Jesus again has these kind of dueling alternatives, three sets of them. He says there are wise and foolish people. He says there are houses that withstand storms and houses that don't. And finally, there are those who have a great fall and those who do not. Your foundation will reveal which of these is true of you. So he's saying in these three comparisons, in these three contrasts, be careful what you build your life around. Because what you build your life upon, what foundation you will choose, will determine three things. One, who you are. Two, how you live. Three, where you end up who you are, how you live, where you end up. Let's look at these three in order. Firstly, who you are. The passage describes two kinds of people, uh, the wise builder and the foolish builder. It says, verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. When Jesus uses the terms wise and foolish, his original hearers, who are Jewish, immediately know what he's talking about. There's a long-standing way of speaking about people in these two categories in the Jewish tradition, starting with God's words in the Old Testament. Probably the book of Proverbs is the most famous place where wise and foolish people are contrasted. And in the book of Proverbs, there's one of the best definitions of the wise. It actually is also in Psalms, Psalm 111, verse 10. There's over 400 verses, by the way, on wise and wisdom in the, old, in, in the Bible. But in Psalm 111, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
And that really is the foundational concept in the Old Testament. Proverbs 1, 7, near the beginning of Proverbs, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see the contrast there between wise and foolish people. It's about the fear of the Lord. The gospel, the whole Bible, describes wisdom as just this, fearing God. Now, to fear God is not the emotion we generally think of when we hear that word. To fear God is to reverence Him so highly as to build your life around Him. It is to make God your foundation, to build your life on the idea that He exists, that He created you, that He created you for Himself, that He created you for His glory. To build your life on Him means to understand that He is good and just and wise and worthy to be obeyed. That's why in Isaiah 66, verse 1, near the end of the whole book of Isaiah, this is what God says. He says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? He's too big to fit in any house, is what he's saying. All these things my hand has made, the ultimate wise builder. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Do you hear that? God looks to them loves them, uses them, these people powerfully who tremble at his word. They take the word of God as God's word. And in wise fear or reverence, they center their lives around God as he expresses himself to them. This is the wise person. They build their life around the gospel truths of God, a loving God, a God of a, who gives his word. They build their lives around God who promises them things, who has taught them to trust, obey, love, and enjoy him forever, and they find their identity in him. What God thinks of them matters more than anything else. How he describes and determines success is how they define and strive for success. How he describes a beautiful life is what they adopt as their criteria. What he says is good they believe and pursue as good. This is the wise person. Now, in contrast, is the fool. And the foolish person, what the Old Testament calls the fool, is probably most memorably described in Proverbs 14.1 and also repeated in Psalm 53. In Proverbs uh, 14.1, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Here then is the fool. They may say with their mouths, because think, the Proverbs is written for Jewish people, a putatively religious culture that all believed in God, but the fool says in his heart, not with his mouth. With his mouth, he probably says there is a God, but in his heart, he says there is no God, and he acts accordingly. You see, they live, in other words, functionally, as if God is not there, is not in control, does not give them guidance or direction, is not able to be depended upon. So they may pay lip service to God. But the way they construct their life, the foundations that they build their life upon are not God and his words, but themselves and their own power, their own glory, their own self-actualization, their own success, their own reputation, their own comfort, their own pleasures, their own fame, their own popularity. These people, these fools, 
can be recognized for whom they are really serving. Whatever foundation really makes them feel alive, whatever metrics they use to measure their own self-worth and build up their own identity, these things are their functional foundations. These are the functional gods that they serve, that they give their energy, their time, their hopes, and their dreams to. In Toronto, we've seen many of these false foundations in our culture. Do, have we not? Career, reputation, financial success, cultural sophistication, the success of our kids. We could go on. Those tend to be the things we center our lives around. When COVID hits us, what anxieties came up? What did we fear most? What we feared most revealed what we held most dear and most integral to our own sense of ourselves, our own identity. I know when COVID hit, I realized how much I value my productivity. I love getting things done. Sue and I both have this, and we both struggled with not being able to be as productive as we were before. It underlies our identity too much. What about you? What did COVID reveal to you? How much is God and His Word These words of mine, as Jesus calls them here, how much is God's divine word regulating, anchoring, and being the foundation of your life? John Calvin, famous exegete, leader of the Reformation, in his commentary on 2 Timothy, put it this way, We owe the word of God the same reverence which we owe God himself, since it proceeded from him. Now, for those of us who are curious about or investigating Christianity, I know you have trouble with this. This this idea of giving that much authority to anyone or anything is deeply countercultural. We live in a very anti-authoritarian age. And yet, remember with me the hopes we all had when Barack Obama got elected in the States and the hopes that we all had when Justin Trudeau first got elected in Canada, how we just hoped that a new kind of politician would usher in a new day of politics. In our heart of hearts, though we live in this anti-authoritarian age, we long. We search all over. We desperately long for someone we can trust. We can give some dependence to. We can gain wisdom from. So what do we do? We stay cynical, but we search everywhere. We, we get a little here, a little there. We, we put together this pastiche, this, this collage of wisdoms and truth from all over the place. These a la carte attempts at creating some kind of life path forward of wisdom. But what if there was an all-knowing, all-wise God who exists, who created you, who's here right now for you, who loves you, who made you for himself, who comes to you in love and grace and sends his son for you. That's what the gospel says. The gospel says, do not stay foolish. Build your life now on the one who came for you. Christian, how much do we pay lip service to the idea there is a God, but in our hearts often act as if there is none? Build our life around these other things. Now is the time for us to look them in the eye and go, no more. No more. I want to turn back to the true God. I want to build my life on the rock. Who you are. Who are you? Are you wise? Are you following God and listening to his words and putting them into practice? Or are you foolish, saying in your heart there is no God and functionally living as if it's all up to you 
and you have complete freedom to live as you want, who you are. Secondly, this impacts how we live. Jesus makes a second point of contrast. This, the foundation you lay will determine how you live, particularly as the storms of life reveal yourself. Jesus contrasts two different outcomes from two different houses. It says in verse uh, 25, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Two verses later, verse 27, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. You see, one fell, one did not. Jesus wants us to see the results of being wise and being foolish, of building our house upon the rock of Christ and his word, or building the house upon the sand of our own wisdom. You see, when the storm came, the actual strength of the house was actually revealed. Jesus is saying both houses, before a storm came, they probably looked fairly similar, you know. One might even look prettier than the other, better painted, better kept up cosmetically. But the one built on sand was easier to build. Rocks, big rocks that you can put, build a foundation of a house on are not that easy to find, especially in that culture. Rocks are rare. Building your house on a rock requires you to look around, confine yourself to certain locations. Build it on sand. Ha, you can build it anywhere. But when the storm comes, the differences are revealed. The house built upon the rock endured. It was built upon a foundation stronger than the storm itself. But the houses built on sand, the easier, the more convenient house. When the storm came, it slid away. And so Jesus is saying, when the storms of life come, are you standing or are you sliding? Are the storms overwhelming you? Or do you have a rock that is anchoring you? How are you living your life? Are you living a life that prevails against the trials and the difficulties, the afflictionness, the brokenness? of our world and the storms of your personal season of life? Or are you living a life that is buffeted and overwhelmed by those trials, afflictions, and storms? I remember the best illustration I could think of when I was thinking of this is a, a, a story in the life of Jesus that comes just a chapter later, actually. In Matthew 8, Jesus falls asleep while on a boat with his disciples. Many of them are fishermen. They're experienced with how to deal with boats and storms on boats, and a storm comes up. But it's a vicious storm. Jesus is asleep. He's asleep, actually, on a pillow. And the experienced fishermen, experienced as they are, what do they do? They say, we will solve this in our own strength. We will act as if Jesus is not even here. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They acted functionally as if Jesus wasn't even there. They'll solve it themselves. It revealed the depth of self-dependence in their hearts, even though they were followers of Jesus. So finally, after relying upon themselves, what happened? The storm kept getting stronger, and it was overwhelming them. And after their functional atheism and self-reliance didn't work, they finally, at the end of their rub, go to Jesus, wake him up, and say, do you not even care that we're perishing? And Jesus says to the storm, hush, be still. (laughs) And completely and immediately, the sea is calm, completely calm, because it is obeying the word of its Lord. It is fearing its God. You see the contrast? 
Even the storm obeys its Lord and Master. Even the biggest storms of life. How about you? We were um, meeting with a couple of our neighbors not too, too long ago, a while ago. And we started talking about how the storm of COVID has revealed deep, hidden things in our hearts. We were talking about some things they had realized as a result of COVID. They'd realized that a lot of their values that they hold dear, a lot of the values that we hold dear uh, as Torontonians, uh, like, for example, care for the environment, a lot of these things just kind of went out the window when COVID hit. Plastic bottles are everywhere. People are buying up things online with all the excess packaging. Uh, We're not able to bring our bags, so we're getting all kinds of plastic bags, right? And we're hoarding food and stuff from other people. And they said, or the conversation came to this, there's kind of a thin veneer of moral values that we have here in the city. But all it takes was COVID to, to, to scratch off the thin veneer. And what did we have left? A really self-interested, selfish group of people. The sober reality of human nature struck us. And I want to say, this is all of us. Wherever we are in our journey of faith, the, the storm revealed to the disciples, despite the fact that they were followers of Jesus, that they still had a self-reliant, I will act as if God is not present, functionally atheistic kind of mentality. Jesus is saying in all of us, there is this tendency, this temptation in all of us to build our houses on sand, on something other than Jesus and his word. Men and women, boys and girls, there's only one rock, powerful enough to anchor us in the storms of our life, in the disease, plague, death, racism, cultural decay, polarization, unemployment, and trauma of now. There's only one rock. These things will overwhelm you if you do not have a rock strong enough to hold you while they pour over you. There's only one Lord of the storm who is able to still the wind and the waves before they overwhelm you. There is only Jesus. Jesus and only Jesus. There's a woman I want to introduce you to if you've not heard of her. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny Erickson Tata was a very active uh, young lady. She grew up in uh, the Maryland area. She grew up this, the daughter of a, an Olympic athlete, actually. She was very active. And at 18, she dove into Chesapeake Bay. And in an error of judgment, she dove into a place too shallow to dive into. The result of it was an accident that paralyzed her from the neck down at age 18. Johnny Tata has been a consistent and beautiful witness, one of my personal heroes for the triumph of faith, joy, peace, and love, despite afflictions, trials, sorrows, and storms that I can only imagine. Johnny Tata says this. She says, most people wish that they could erase suffering out of the dictionary. Today's culture of comfort and instant gratification has no patience for suffering. Most people want to drug it, Escape it, divorce it, do anything but live with it. But when you're forced to live with it, what do you do? She was asked how she was able to deal with this unbelievable storm of being paralyzed from the neck down from age 18. She said this, 
Faith isn't the ability to believe long and far into the misty future. It's simply taking God at his word and taking the next step. That's how to live. That's living by faith. That is building your house upon the rock. When you build your house on the rock, you take God at his word, and then you take the next step, trusting in his promises, trusting in his presence, that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the promises of the gospel and the grace of God, you will be able to get through because you're anchored on the rock. You are then equipped to live all of your life in front of God's face, for God's glory, relying upon his grace, experiencing his joy, despite the trials of life he is allowing into your experience. When you, where you build, excuse me, where you build determines who you are, and it determines how you live and how you will face those storms. You will either be buffeted and battered by the storms or anchored by the rock. You will either be overwhelmed by the flood and the wind or will have the peace of the Lord of the wind and the waves. So, implication for all of us. Ask yourself, how do I face the storms? Do they overwhelm me? Do I try to solve them on my own? Or do I call out to God in dependence and do I experience his peace and strength to withstand them? Where you build determines who you are. Where you build determines how you live. Finally, where you build determines where you will end up. The last verse, I just want to repeat it because there's a a phrase at the end that has made scholars pause and really think about the deeper implications of what Jesus is saying. Let me read it again. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, the house on the sand. And it fell, and great was its fall. This is a profoundly sobering note. It fell, and great was the fall of it, or great was its fall. Scholars have noted this language There's an emerging consensus that in the striking language of the Greek used here, there's something more than just to fall. The word for fall here means something sudden and severe or catastrophic. That is also strengthened by the, the Greek word here that means great. This is a catastrophic great fall. What Jesus appears to be alluding to, as he alluded to last week in his warnings when he said, depart from me, I never knew you, Scholars agreed that when he said, depart from me, I never knew you, and that was from the last passage, he meant, depart from me eternally. And here, they think he means the same thing. The fall is a fall into eternal alienation from God. The catastrophic, eternal, unchangeable falling away from God and his presence and his favor. This is final or eschatological. Jesus seems to be saying, and it's consistent with his teaching everywhere else, we need to come to him and through him and by him if we want to come to God and be in good favor with God. Men and women, Jesus is warning every single one of us, it doesn't matter how many times you've been to church, how much of the Bible you have read or even memorized, whether you've been baptized as a child or as an adult, at the end of the day, what are you doing with his words? 
This is the one to whom I will look, Isaiah 66. One who trembles at my word. This is a sober warning to those of us who love God's grace but like to take advantage of it just a little too much. We speak so highly of God's grace, and here at our church, I am guilty. I emphasize God's grace deeply. We've named the church after it for crying out loud. But Jesus makes clear here and elsewhere that grace leads to obedience, or it is not grace at all. Obedience does not earn God's favor, no. But grace always leads to obedience. One of my favorite verses, and I share this with people who are interested in the Christian faith all the time, is from Ephesians chapter 2. Paul puts the gospel so clearly. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not a result of works that no one should boast. It's the gift of God. You hear that? Grace saved by a gift. You don't earn it. Isn't that beautiful? It's free. It's unconditional. (laughs) Read the next verse. It is unconditional, but look what it produces. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God created beforehand that we should walk in them. You hear that? We're saved by grace as a gift for good works. The Spirit comes into us to bear His fruit, to produce good works from a heart of gratitude. If those works of grateful service to Jesus, of grateful pouring out of your life in love and generosity for your neighbor, if those works are not in your life, if love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness are not in your life, as we said last week, if love for God and your neighbor is not growing and the desire to obey Jesus and his word and to live by those words is not the center of your life, then do not be so sure his grace has been poured out over you. Grace leads to a desire for obedience. Now, as I said last week, if you're fighting a sense of not being obedient enough, Welcome to the club. We should all feel that way. The Spirit creates a restless desire to do more, to be better, to be more loving. That is a consistent fruit of being a Christian. But if you're just relying on God's grace so you can do whatever the heck you want, like it's a get-out-of-jail-free card, I need to caution you. You're building your house upon sand. And when the final storm of God's winnowing judgment comes you will not be on the rock. Jesus died for you so you can experience his grace. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. That's unconditional grace. But he also rose again. He didn't just die, he rose again so you can follow his commands, walk in newness of life, be filled with his spirit and live a life of love and sacrificial generosity and obedience. You don't get to separate the cross from the resurrection. He who died for you rose for you. You died with him, you rose with him. They are inseparable. And therefore... You, can, you only get pardoned for sins with power to not sin. 
You only get pardoned for sins with the proclivity, the desire to no longer sin, but now to love. They come together. You don't get faith without works. You get faith and grace that bring in the Spirit who produces works in you. James said faith without works is dead because it's a false faith. Grace without works isn't living grace. It's not Jesus' grace. Loving Jesus from the heart means experiencing his grace and wanting to follow him from head to toe. It just does. There's only one road. The gate is narrow. The way is hard, but he is worthy. There's only one set of fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. But it's the fruit that he naturally produces when you abide in Jesus. His Spirit produces it in you. There's only one verdict, the God God's verdict himself that says, you are mine, I know you. You know how I know you? I died for you, and I see the fruit of your love for me in you because my grace has changed you. There's only one way to build your life. It's on the rock that is Christ and his word. How do we do that? Very quickly, if you're experiencing... Uh, um, Christianity for maybe the first time or you're new to it, uh, you need to understand. Jesus went through the ultimate storm for you, the storm of God's judgment. He went to the cross and there he allowed the howling winds of God's anger at selfishness, human wrong, human cruelty, human evil, our sin, yours and mine, He allowed the winds of that to be poured out on Jesus, to howl into him. And Jesus became the guilt-bearing sacrifice for you and for me. He took your sin. He became a curse for you. So you don't have to face that ultimate storm of God's judgment. So he appears to you now, not a corpse on a cross, but as a rock to build your life upon. And he invites you to build your life on that house that the storms of life may not overwhelm you, but that the Lord of the storm may give you peace. Come to him. Ask him to come into your life. Ask him for the forgiveness of sins. Invite Jesus. Say, Jesus, come in. Forgive my sin. I give you my life. If you're a Christian, you've probably already done that. But is the foundation shifting off of the rock? And are you beginning to to, to shift it a little into the sand? Relocate your foundation. Center yourself again on Jesus. Read his word. Obey his words. Show yourself by what you think, what you feel, and what you do to be one who builds his house upon the rock. Put yourself into his word again. Get yourself accountable to somebody to do what he is calling you to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time we can spend together, and I pray that we would build our house upon the rock, that we would follow this Jesus all the way, that the entrance is narrow, the way is hard, but the Spirit is powerful. And so I pray that we who have the Spirit would live in the resurrection power of Jesus, do the works of faith, hope, love, joy, and peace that show us to be truly your disciples. And we build our house upon that rock that we may be anchored there through the storms of life and into eternal life, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.